Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson, brought to you by our partner for the Giro d'Italia, Lecole. This is Giro Stage 7. We're going to get into it. A bit of controversy at the end, actually. We'll put a few timestamps, or we'll try to, for the subtopics in the show notes and the YouTube video uh, description. But as you know, our Giro show is brought to you and made possible by our partner, Lecole, who produced performance cycling apparel for the road only. They're committed to making you faster on the road on every ride. And they also supply the Bahrain McLaren kits in the Pro Peloton. Their man, Pelo Bilbao, in third position on GC right now and kind of a sneaky or a dark horse pick, I think, for a top five on GC, if not better. I kind of like him in the time trials, to be honest, where he'll be wearing, obviously, the Lecole kit optimized for him wind tunnel tested with the help of mclaren you can check out their kits if you want to have a look on www.lecole.cc that's l-e-c-o-l.cc but on to giro stage seven benji leaving from matera the crazy town to brindisi 143k stage and this is the correct length of a sprint stage once again pretty short one 143ks pretty much pancake flat, and we had some crosswind action, strong gusts in the first 30Ks or so out of the neutral zone, and then in maybe the last 30Ks there was projected to be wind as well. Um, but really they they sort of went inland, then went along the coast into the first intermediate sprint at Taranto, then back inland to the coast on the other side uh, to Brindisi. Our picks yesterday were both Gavidia, uh, this being probably the purest sprint stage uh, in this year's year at Italia. So if he, wasn't, if he was going to win one, it was going to be this one. But, yeah, what it kicked off, Benji, just like World to Stage 17 last year, this kicked off straight out the gate. Yeah, we had a small breakaway group that launched directly with the likes of Josef Czerny from CCC, Thomas Hent from Lado Sudel, and Marco Fraporti from Vinny Zabu, together with Simon Pelot, who was also in the breakaway on the fourth stage that Demar won. Now, that breakaway didn't survive for too long because after a good 15 kilometers, we'd see the likes of Jumbo Visma and the Kuhn and Quickstep both move to the front. And it looked like they were planning something. We knew that the upcoming section had crosswinds. So we expected something from the likes of the Koenig, who is pretty good at this. Now, compared to like five-ish years ago, if we think about Jumbo during those days, they were always, every single time, the victim of a echelon. And I feel the last year, I think in the Vuelta last year, I think they were the victim of one as well with Roglic. But in this Grand Tour and in the Tour de France that we had, they were not in any position where they had any trouble in echelons. And it's very noticeable. And they also work on launching echelons themselves because today, together with the Koenig, they were the cause of the first echelon business. And quite a few big guns were behind. We had the likes of Fulsang, Micah, Harun van Hooker, who is in the white jersey for Lotto Sudel, and Simon Yates dropping. And that first group still had Kreisweg, Almeida, Nibali, Sagan, Demar, Gelderman. So no big gaps in between either. But at a certain point, that second group started splitting and the likes of Micah was behind. Uh, the likes of Yates, I mean, was in the third group. And also Pozzo Viva, who also lost the... Well, the positioning and eventually ended up in the third group. And we noticed that because suddenly Mitchelton and NTT were pacing in that third group, who was already seen on a minute, while the second group with Fulsung was seen on 20 
to 25 seconds. So big echelon business, but unfortunately, it all came together again a bit later. But the first hour, 56.5 kilometers an hour average. That's insane. That's just mad. (laughs) That's so fast. I think this ended up being the fastest Euro Italia stage ever. 51.5 Ks an hour or something insane. And if you don't know, it's cross tailwinds that are the most vicious in causing echelons. And that's what we had. And that's why you also have really fast stages when it's a cross tailwind, like the stage uh, 17 that I talked about in Vuelta last year to Guadalajara was, I think, the quickest stage over 200 kilometers ever. That's why Philip Gilbert's got a little sticker on his bike about that. I don't know what this the stage is, is faster. Called. Yeah, but it's not over 200 k's. Yeah, that's it, correct. That's correct. So the sticker has the stage actually over 200 k's. I think Trentin had it before uh, Gilbert. So yeah, once again, it was pretty obvious that Quickstep were going to try something once they, yeah, once we saw the weather forecast. If you, every sort of Joe Blow is tweeting about echelons and wind speed with little shots of the, the wind projected, then the teams are going to know that as well. So the strong teams in crosswinds are going to try something. Fulsang and Astana. Astana's team is not set up very well to work in crosswinds for Fulsang. Like, yeah, they were they were just riding terribly in the crosswinds, to be honest, Astana. Um, they were surging at the front. I think Fellini a few times, and then it just they weren't rotating very well. I think that Fulsang group was very lucky that Ineos and the big boys there got on the front and started driving it. Uh, Dennis, I think, and Ghana maybe as well. Um, think they in your driving it really worked into that gap and also the cross tailing died down a little bit which contributed to coming it, it all coming back together and to, to kind of increase it kind of giving up and trek not really helping them either benji like you've got full sang back and trek weren't really helping now what help the italians on that squad could have been i'm not really sure but yeah it all came back together and then i think the next big moment apart from an intermediate sprint where they didn't really sprint, was a crash with 45Ks to go where there was a big banner on the road at 45Ks to go and they were in five-kilometre increments, which makes no sense. It was just a sponsored banner, I think, and there were fences holding up the banner, right? And they caused a pinch point. It wasn't a natural pinch point in the road. There wasn't really anyone signalling it and riders got caught out and, well, not caught out, they were... They weren't expecting it to be there, and then it, yeah, a crash occurred in the middle of the bunch. A fair few people went down. I haven't really seen any news of anyone being badly injured or anything like that. Uh, fortunately, the barrier is not its not mandatory for it to be there, but, yeah, it, people did get held up. Um, I think Ghana went down relatively hard, and I think, ooh, who went, who got, um, who got caught up from the GC guys? I think Vanoka the got caught up in Possevivo again. So they'd spent half the f- stage, the first half off the back because of the crosswinds, and then they're caught behind again because of a crash when they're already probably tired. Uh, and they, they were lucky once again with a minute behind with 33Ks to go that they had Filippo Ganner in that group um, who was working a little bit, I think, in the blue jersey. Um, but yeah, did I miss anyone else important, Benji, or anything else sort of in the middle of this stage where I kind of had a little nana nap um, to get me through to the finale? I think in general, we just have a lot of riders that were caught behind today in some way or form. By the crash, we had Fulsang and Kelderman also being led behind for a tiny bit. 
Odzo Vivo being one of the riders that probably had to do most of the work, I think, today, because getting into that last group at the start, then being caught behind by the crash, he generally has to do more work than other people to try and come back. And he does not have the strongest team either to help him out in getting him back to the front. So I feel like he might have been the rider that was struck most by what happened today. I hope that everybody comes out of this without injuries or anything, some hidden injuries from the crash. And even Van Hook as well also called out so many times. The question then is, is it because of the riders being in a bad position all the time? Because you don't accidentally end up in the third echelon, I would guess. If you get in the second echelon, you realize that echelons are happening. So being caught in the third one is just an extra mistake to me personally. Or you just can't do anything about it if you're caught up at the, at the end of the group. But I feel like you shouldn't be at the end of the group in the first place. So I don't know. I feel like it's clear which riders are more prepared than others for echelons and for crashes with positioning in the peloton and so forth. And we spoke about it a few days ago with the consistency of Vincenzo Nibali that he is prepared for these kind of stages, unlike what Trek was at the Tour de France. And we saw that at the start of the stage, he was at the front. And during the crashes, he was before the crash. So it looks like his positioning throughout the stage was excellent. And that way, he was not caught behind at any single moment. But on the opposite side of that coin is Simon Yates. At the back of the peloton all the time, he was in that third group. He was off the back with the Pozzavivo group for ages, like 45 back when Fulsang Micah were only 15 seconds behind the Kreuzweig, Nibali, Kelderman group. And, yeah, he's just got a positioning problem when he does it in mountain stages, flat stages. And when you look on paper, compared to some of the – compared to Trek's team, okay, they've got Hepburn, Haig, Cameron Meyer, Eduardo Athene, Damien Housen, Lucas Hamilton. That's pretty good for the – you know, in the context of this Giro – as a flatland squad, especially Athene, Meyer, and Hepburn and Housen. So I'd be reluctant to blame those guys for having Yates out of position or not having the firepower to make the first or second echelon. Like, how are those guys not making the second echelon? Um, so what's going on with Simon Yates? <laughs> I mean, He's getting, getting paid sort of top 10 in the world GC contender money, I think, or pretty big money at Mitchelton. He's come into this race as the GC favourite and Mitchelton have put all their eggs in his basket. They sacrificed Haig's chances at any good result on GC for Yates and we've had no explanation at all about what happened on Etna and Stage 5. He is like four minutes down on GC. He's getting – like getting into the third echelon now today on stage seven. And when he got dropped on those stages, it was, it was easy. They were doing 5.2, 5.3 watts per kilo. That's verified by all the power data from the riders. Um, so when he got dropped, so is he sick and they're not saying anything or what's going on? Because it's looking a bit strange right now and I don't know whether they should just deliberately lose time at this point and let him go for, uh, for stages because – or maybe they think they can salvage something. Um, four minutes is a long, is a big gap, particularly with the legs he's showing. Um, but I've gone pretty off topic there. What, what do you do? You think Yates is done, Benji, or do you think he can come back and they should not sacrifice GC just yet? I think Yates has a bit of a bad relationship with the Giro in general. Every single time he's been here, 
he's had situations that he suddenly collapses. We had the first one with those 26 minutes on the Froome stage in 2018. We had last year where he started the Giro saying that everybody should be scared of them, literally saying, if I was them, I'd be shitting themselves. So that's a bit of an arrogant statement before a Grand I don't, Tour. I don't mind that, actually. I uh, like that. Really? Yeah, because <laughs> I'd, I'd say the same thing. If I was, like, half good, <laughs> I would talk so much shit. <laughs> the thing is, I agree with talking shit as long as you can hold it up. And I said when no, he said that... don't even need to hold, hold it up. up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said when he said that, as long as he can do what he says, I'm fine with his arrogance. And I've said the same with Avonapool as Avonapool is often in situations where people also take him out of context a lot, but he also says a lot of stuff that is very ambitious and can be seen as arrogant. And because of that, I always say, as long as they can keep up what they say, I'm fine with that confidence, maybe overconfidence a tiny bit, but I like that stuff as long as they can hold it up. And yeah, Yates didn't hold it up last year and I had a good laugh and it became a good meme. So eventually still fine with it. And this year he came without saying too much. So I guess he learned his lesson a bit from last year in that overconfidence side. And he is just bashing on the same wall that he does not find the good rhythm or anything. It's, it's, we, we also don't know what happened the first year around because I don't know if anybody defined what happened there. So I feel like in general, they are not overly transparent to why he is currently behaving like this, but I don't think they have actually done that in previous years either. So I don't yeah, actually but if expect you, to know. If you get dropped in the third week of a Grand Tour and lose time, right, at 5.3 watts per kilo, there is a logical explanation that there is a recovery problem or he's tired, etc. Getting dropped on stage three or whatever it was up Etna at 5.2 in the wheels in the first 15, 20 minutes of the climb that literally that literally makes no sense. Like you shouldn't be tired. Um, but yeah, this we're gonna have to put a timestamp there because we've got a we got went on a Simon Yates discussion. Um, back to the race, it's pretty much it all came back together after the crash. I think they were actually kind of chilling because there were a lot of people caught back, even maybe some lead out men. And ten k's to go, GC teams at the front plus Quick Step as well, who are sort of there for GC as well with Almeida and the Maglia Rosa, obviously Portuguese lad that we both love. And, yeah, not much happened in the last 10Ks, to be honest, until the finale. It was just GC teams controlling. But also, I said that the other day that Nibali and Fulsang were well within their rights to go for the stage. I think it might have even been yesterday because there was a chance that they could gain time on Kreuzweig or someone if they got caught out. But I have no idea why Jos van Emden or Tony Martin were pacing for Kreuzweig keeping him up the front up to the last 1,200 metres, at which point he got swamped and then nearly crashed or lost his front wheel. Like, unless Stevie K has been doing some special training since the Criterium de Dauphiné crash and he's suddenly pumping out 1,500 for 15, I think you can just take him to the 3K to go banner and then that's all right, uh, like Ineos typically do. Seen a bit... Seemed a little bit weird and a little bit sketchy, and you could see FDJ kind of itching behind them, waiting to do. I mean, they were probably happy FDJ waiting, waiting for uh, their lead out. But anyway, is do you who initially led the sprint out, Benji, and took over from like fourteen hundred or the Flam Rouge? With about one thousand one hundred meters to go or so, I noticed that Groupama FDJ, which is the uh, 
best lead out in the game at the moment this year. We've spoken about it a lot with taking over, but it was pretty chaotic because they had their lead out up and running. But at the same moment, UAE tried to come by the side of it on the left. And I don't know what was happening with UAE. I felt like I saw Rishenze, I saw Milano. I never even saw Gaviria in a proper position. So I'm not sure who they were going for at any point. And I noticed that on the left side of the road, we saw Rishenze, I think, moving up. It could be Gaviria, but I think it's Rishenze because the commentator kept shouting Rishenze. And he moved up on the left side of Groupama Evdegen's train and started riding very close to the FDG train. And the second rider of that train decided to move a slight bit to the left, ride into Rishenze a tiny bit. And that's not really a deviation because obviously they're not sprinting yet, but also it's not really super dangerous because he's only moving up like 10 centimeters. But just because that UAE rider was riding so close to him at a certain point, it looked like they were going to bash into each other. But that UAE rider did make a mistake in my eyes and something that should not be allowed. And that is the thing we always see when it comes to leadouts. I think Rishese thought that Gaviria was in his wheel and did exactly what Maku does a lot in sprints as well, is moving up, trying to block the other sprinter a tiny bit, very subtly, to try and let Gaviria pass through on the left and get into the wheel of that Groupama rider. And here that is a mistake because he was next to Demar at that point, which means that he's riding into Demar, literally moving Demar to the right side of the road a tiny bit. And to me, this is worth a relegation already. So that's the controversial point number one of this sprint, that UAE rider did not have to move to the right, and he endangered others doing so, but they were not sprinting yet. But I feel like this just falls under the overall endangerment rule, because that is a... A very dangerous movie did, and that should not be allowed in my eyes. Did you notice that as well, or do you think I'm I'm blabbering about here? No, I agree. It was kind of it was all over over the place in the last kilometer. I think all the leadout trains were not really particularly UAE. They were all over the shop, um, and Richese definitely like Gaviri was nowhere to be found. And in the end, it was I think Ballerini launching for quick step. On the left-hand side now, I'm pretty sure there was wind coming from from their right shoulder, I believe. Ballerine was on the left-hand side sprinting pretty early, quick-step rider. Um, I couldn't see Alvaro Hodge anywhere. I, I can't really tell, to be honest, whether Ballerini was doing a lead-out for Hodge. I think he was. And then DeMar was slipped onto his wheel. And as I said, the, the trains were all muddled up. So DeMar slides onto Ballerini's wheel. Um, apologies to Hodge if that was actually Hodge. And then DeMar has Sagan right on his wheel. DeMar's in the Chikiamina jersey. And as DeMar's is on the left-hand barrier, by the way, DeMar comes out of quick-step man's wheel, starts sprinting, and goes diagonally across the road. Very, clearly the quickest, though, quickest sprinter today. And him he's got Sagan right on his wheel and it was clear like Sagan was almost just doing his best just to hold his wheel they gap pretty much everyone else it's a massive gap behind them uh the gap that Demar opens up he's at a different level sprint wise to the other guys at this race and yes Sagan Demar keeps going to the right hand side doesn't go all the way to the barriers he then leaves like a about a rider's width uh 
rather than a half's width to the barriers and straightens up to the line. Sagan oh, doesn't really, almost gets to overlapping his wheels, but never really does, to be honest. Never comes out of his slipstream. Sagan a little bit, and then obviously Demar wins the stage. Sagan second. Sagan a little bit cranky at Demar for weaving across the road in the sprint. Michael Matthews came third. Uh, I'd almost say there was probably almost a big enough gap between the first two and Matthews for there to be time, time gaps. Ben Swift fourth for Ineos, Hodge fifth, Rudy Barbier sixth for ISU. He's actually pretty – watch him for other stages, Barbier. Ballerini seventh, Batayin eighth, Fiorelli ninth, Viviani tenth, and Gavidia a very disappointing eleventh. So – yeah, I don't know where Milano was. I'm looking for uh, UAE. He was he got the same time as them, and so did Richese. But yeah, I don't know where Milano was. Maybe he's the second to last lead out man. Bjerg was there. Like Bjerg came thirteenth. So yeah, I, I don't know what went up with UAE's train today. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't work. <laughs> UAE's train didn't work. It was a mess. And almost maybe Quick Steps was too because. You've got Hodge and Ballerini fifth and seventh, so I'd like to go back and see as well. Yeah, that, that seemed to be a bit of a mess. They went on each other's wheel, um, and Demar's just at a different level to these guys, uh, to be honest. Even though Sagan Sagan's looking like the second best pure sprinter as well. Um, but let's get in Benji to the spicy topic, which has become spicy on Twitter, I guess, which is the Arno Demar sprint and whether it should be a relegation. Now, what's the – maybe describe again exactly what DeMar did in on the road, and then we'll talk about what the actual rule is. Okay, so we know that DeMar started on the left side of the road in the wheel of leadouts. We know that Sagan is in his wheel when the sprint of DeMar is starting where he launches outside of his leadouts wheel, and – uses a diagonal line to the right side of the road, but he does not actually close towards the barrier. He he decides with about one meter to his right that he's going to start riding straight. And that leaves an opportunity for Sagan to move on the right. Now, the situation that people are complaining about, first of all, is that he launched and he chose the diagonal line to the right, making sure that Sagan cannot pass on the right and this would fall under potentially being dangerous, according to these people. Now, personally, let's define the rule first. The rule in sprints is... I'm the lawyer, Benji. This is my time to shine. I spent six years in law, in law school and commerce, measuring in finance, um, and four years at a top-tier law firm. You know, I'm going to steal my thunder, Okay. Article 2.3.036 of the UCI Road Rules, text modified on the 1st of 1st, uh, 2005. Sprints. Riders shall be strictly forbidden to deviate from the lane, not line, lane they selected when launching into the sprint, first step, and second step, in so doing, i.e. in so deviating, endangering others. So you can't you can deviate and if you don't endanger anyone, it's not a relegation or against the rules. 
you cannot deviate and endanger someone. And so there's a few things here. So first off, Benji, and Benji and I, we probably did something we shouldn't have done, which we never do. We got into a discussion about this before we started the podcast, um, started beefing. So we, we should have left that for the podcast. But what is your view of what a lane is that a rider selects, Benji? Because people are saying, oh, well, DeMar didn't deviate from his diagonal line. Uh, but what, what do you view as a lane? Well, firstly, I thought it was line as well. So my first issue with that discussion we had against each other was that I saw well, so it as I. a line. I had to go and check it. Yeah, I saw it as a line. And for me, a line would mean that this could be in any direction as long as you stay in the same direction as you started in. So you can choose diagonal lines in that sense. But the rule defines as lane. If you look up definitions of lanes, this means that it's straight. So there's no discussion anymore. If it's lane in the rule, then your line has to be straight for it to count. If we apply this to yep. today's sprint, I find it really hard. But it's also clear on one end. So what I find hard is the fact that he launches and... Oh, let's go back. Let's go back. So we've, we've defined okay. what a lane is. So a lane is like in a swimming pool, you have a swimming lane. It is a straight line to the finish. So second, which is where there's ambiguity, when does the rider launch his sprint? Does DeMar launch his sprint when he straightens up with 50 to go or when he comes out of the slipstream of Ballerini to the right-hand side? My view is he has launched his sprint when he has come out of the slipstream he has clear air in front of him, i.e. no one in front of him, and he is sprinting basically for the line. He is sprinting and it's like the last 200 metres. Um, it's not in the last 50 metres or whatever. It's when a rider comes out of the slipstream, got clear air in front of them, last 200 metres and they're sprinting. Is that basically your interpretation of what a launching into the sprint is, Benji? Yes, for me it is indeed when you decide to come out of the wheel of your sprinter and you start sprinting with clear air ahead of you, then it is launching your sprint. Now, I do have a different discussion surrounding this. What if you launch your sprint, but you're still in the wheel of other people, but you swerve across the side of the road like you and dozen sprints, and that leads to endangerment? Would that be punishable by this rule or would it need to be so dangerous that it falls under the other rule as endangerment in the race see i don't think that falls under this rule because i interpret launching into the sprint as being your sprinting for clear air um that's not that is subjective and that's just my view of what the rule means but yeah when ewan was got that first tdf win this year and he's swerving all over the place is he already launched into his sprint? Maybe. I, I don't think so because he's waiting to get into clear air. But, yeah, it's a hard one and the rule is kind of ambiguous. So we're going to get to, we obviously, but I think we both think the rule needs to be changed. But, yeah, Benji, why why do you think and we both think this that DeMar actually shouldn't be relegated just based on the wording of this rule? So if we say that DeMar launches his sprint, don't he gets out of the wheel of Ballerini, then he starts deviating after that because he starts changing his lane throughout the first 50 meters after he gets out of Ballerini because he starts at the left and ends about one meter off the right of the road. 
This means that he has deviated from that area where he launches to the right side of the road. What is happening behind him is Sagan, who is expected to pass Demar on the right, but obviously sees that Demar is deviating. And because of that, does not launch into the sprint on the right of Demar because he knows that if he does that, he's going to crash. And we all already see frustration in Sagan's eyes at that point because he knows that Demar is deviating and he's against that because it this allows him to sprint on the right side of Demar. Now, in general, that is why this is not a problem according to this rule because Sagan never gets into the real endangerment. He is never being endangered by Demar here unless he decides to launch past Demar and gets himself into actual danger. This rule doesn't apply, which is, in my opinion, an issue with the rule. But first, I'll throw it to you. Is that the same way you anticipate why he should not be relegated? Or do you feel like there's a different situation going on? No, I agree exactly. Sagan didn't put himself into a position where he was in danger. Therefore, the rule does not operate to protect him. You could almost see it in the front-on shot. You can see the decision-making going through Sagan's mind when Damar is... Because Damar's just gradually closing this door to him, right? Kind of like the Gronerwegen one. Not as savage, but it's just this gradual move across, shutting the door. And then only in the last 50 or 40 does Damar straighten up a little bit. And then people are like, oh, well, he did leave enough space on the right-hand side. But really, his, his line was moving all the way, shutting the door. You can see Sagan in the front-on shot almost thinking, holy shit, am I going to have to do this whole Wout van Aert thing again where I burst through on the barriers and go through this gap and get relegated to the back of the bunch? And in, at the end, in the end, there was a big enough gap for him. Um, but why is Sagan being, having to be put in that decision-making process where, and what if Demar didn't straighten up? as well um but yeah you can see Sagan it's kind of like well I shot the gap in the tour I got relegated and then he doesn't shoot the gap today and then because the rule only operates to protect riders who've been endangered then he doesn't get protected by the rule and the rider who's deviated from their lane doesn't get relegated or penalized at all so clearly the rule is wrong where it only operates where a rider's been put in danger because the rule is not just about safety it's also about fair competition and Demar didn't know that he was going to beat Sagan that easily today. Like, yeah, sure, Demar was going to win anyway, right? I don't think Sagan was going to come around him. Demar's a different level, but he didn't know that Sagan nearly beat him. He was only beat Sagan by like three millimeters on the other sprint stage, so he didn't know that. And maybe on his day, Sagan could beat him. So, what if Sagan was on really good legs, was coming up to the right hand side? And he has to pull out, pull out of that sprint properly. And then then what? Then the judges are like, oh, well, was he really in danger? I mean, he braked. So he didn't actually initiate contact with Damar. And so that's just not, the rule's not working effectively there where riders can deviate from their lane, where everyone behind them, if they ride conservatively, then are sort of not in danger. And then the rider that deviates will win rather than, no, if you prevent another rider, okay, Sagan was prevented from sprinting in 
the lane he should have been allowed to sprint, which was on the right-hand side, maybe three riders wider of Ballerini in the middle of the road. Like there was space. Sagan should have been able to sprint in the middle lane of the road. And if DeMar had sprinted to the right of Ballerini, but he was denied that lane. So it really should be the rule. The rule should be changed because it's broken at the moment. I tweeted something about that. It should be changed to once you have selected your lane, once you've launched your sprint and you have clear air in front of you in the last 200 meters, so no riders in front of you, you cannot deviate from that lane. So that would mean Ewan, when he was swerving around behind other riders, that's not against that rule. He's allowed to do that because he didn't have clear air in front of him. It means once DeMar starts sprinting around Ballerini, there's no one in front of him, he's got to stick to that lane next to Ballerini um, because he's, riders just shouldn't be allowed to sweep across the road like that and close the door and everybody coming behind them. Um, but, yeah, do you think that rule would work, work Benji, or what would, your, would you amend the rule at all? Yeah, I think that might work, but you've got to keep in mind that there's so many exceptions that we've spoken about already that whenever you bring out a rule that it applies to every single one of those exceptions, and I, I cannot 100% give you that assurance that it's not going to comply with every single one of the exceptions that we've made already on this podcast even. So I feel like if a rule is made, it needs to define every single possible situation. And that's very difficult. So it's not surprising that rules like this are not complete in the sense that it does not apply to every situation that happens, but they should adapt it accordingly and make it better and better until it is not flawed anymore. And at the moment, I feel the current rule is flawed. If, if you want to go and look at a perfect example of why this rule isn't working, go and watch DeMar's sprint in the overhead and see what happens. Doesn't get relegated because he doesn't endanger Sagan because Sagan, at no point does Sagan have his right wheel overlapping uh, DeMar. And I guess if he or she didn't have his wheel overlapping Philippe and there wasn't contact, well, was he really put in danger? Maybe not. So... There's a problem with it there, but compared to Mars sprint, no relegation today, and Elia Viviani's sprint in stage three of the Giro last year, where he was relegated, where he didn't move as far across the road as DeMar, the only difference being, I think he had, oh, I want to say Edward Turns or one of the Trek sprinters um, behind him, and he was overlapping wheels to the left-hand side of Viviani, so when Viviani moved across to the left, he had to take evasive action. It was obvious that he got chopped. Viviani got relegated. Um, so that's why this rule doesn't work because DeMar only doesn't get relegated because he didn't have a rider that was coming up, trying to come up straight uh, to his right-hand side. I want to talk about something extra to it. We've got okay. that situation with Richese in that 1K margin somewhere before the line. He makes that move. Now, my issue is that the only real punishment that is defined in the rules here is a relegation, a financial fine, some points losses, some KOM points losses, some seconds in GC. But that does not effectively punish Richese, who does not give a shit about any of that. So I feel like, in general... There is a clear issue. We've spoken about it on the UCI uh, World Championships for women that Longo Borghini was 
being able to get relegated only to the same spot she was in at the end because she was last in the group anyway. So there are situations where the punishment feels like there is no actual efficient, effective punishment for riders for me as well. I mean, like everything I say about how to fix cycling, just steal from another sport. So just steal from whatever Formula One has, right? Does they have some sort of point system where if you rack up enough points for naughty behavior on the track, you get some sort of race ban? I don't know. Um, I'm a I'm a casual F1 fan. I'm sure people will let us know in the comments. But yeah, let us know in the comments down below on YouTube. Do you agree with our take on the demand non-relegation by the letter of the law? He shouldn't have been relegated, but, the, but that law isn't working effectively to prevent that behaviour that could be dangerous and that is not fair for a fair competition. But this is a very divisive topic. A lot of people have different opinions and a lot of people don't really know the rule that, that well. They sort of they think they know what the rule should be, but they don't really know what the rule actually currently says. But on to stage eight from Giovinazzo to Vieste, 200Ks on the dot tomorrow. It's pretty much all coastline from going up north. Oh, they sort of go northwest, then they go northeast. It's flat, pancake flat for the first 90Ks, and they've got a Cat 2 climb that is easier than an uncategorized climb at the start of Stage 6, so <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Um which has an intermediate sprint at Manfredonia before it. It's the Monte Sant'Angelo, 9.4 Ks at 6.2% cat to maybe they just want to have KOM points at the top of that. Then a descent and then lots of little hills, 2.8 Ks, 5.6%, 1.6%, just loads of rollers, sort of Liège style climbs um, into the finish, which is at uh, Vieste, which is... It's got a small climb of 900 metres of 3% in like the last oh, two, three kilometres, I think. Uh, yeah, just about with 2Ks to go, but then a flat finish. And um, I have to pick, I think, DeMar tomorrow again. <laughs> I have to pick him. I'm pretty sure I picked him for this stage in my uh, stage eight. No, I picked Sagan. Mm. It's going to be DeMar and Sagan, I think, with like Matthew's third. I don't really see any any other result. Um, we tried to get cute with it with Gaviria changing it up today, and well, that that didn't work. So yeah, do you, who do you think could uh, who's going to be your three pizza man? Mm, it's really hard because I would think about potentially a breakaway, but yeah, it's it's not really that. <laughs> so if it comes down to an actual sprint, I think it's DeMar because. These climbs are not hard enough to drop them are, unlike that one stage in the future that we, well, had our friendly bet on that he was going to drop. I'm starting to get worried, not going to lie, because the mark could genuinely win like like seven stages if he if he continues <laughs> like this. <laughs> Imagine if he wins like seven stages, one third of a Grand Tour. Would that ever have happened? I think six was Cav in the Tour de France ones, right? Or I'm was sure. it four? Yeah, well, Cipollini usually pulled out like after 10 days, right? So I'm not sure what his record was at the Giro. Yeah, I think I'm going to go for... Ah! I feel like we, we're throwing Matthews under a bus a lot lately because he hasn't performed as we hoped he would. But I think that this stage is going to be won by DeMar, but... Oh my god, I think that Sagan will try as well. 
fuck it, Demar, why not? Just win every yeah. stage. I'm going to go with Demar just because if he doesn't win, I'll be happy, and if he does win, I'll be right. So I get best of both worlds. <laughs> not, that, not that I'm a Demar hater. It's just I want to be good to see some other riders win some stages, these sprint stages. Uh, even Peter Sagan, it'd kind of be nice. Poor, but well, not poor guy. He's rich, but um, yeah, he's got a lot of seconds, and he's got like two years since his last win. But yeah, that's another stage eight tomorrow. Whether there's going to be a breakaway, maybe we get surprised, Benji, and there could be a breakaway. Um, got that long flat beforehand once again the gc teams don't really care like why would quick step pull it back unless they really want to go for the stage are they going to work really hard for hodge and ballerini i mean maybe ballerini tomorrow's a good shout but yeah work for them just to get tailed up by demar in the finish i don't think so i think quick step will just work to make sure they keep the malia rosa which almeida's been wearing for a fair while by now and it will be up to Bora and FDJ and Sunweb if they want to get this stage win. And if those three teams work, they probably will keep the break in check. The breaks that have been going are not big. They don't have very strong riders in them typically. Um, it's sort of been De Hent tried again today, and, yeah, it just wasn't happening. Um, so I, it's hard to see a breakaway, but it would be great if one did go because um, we knew the break wasn't going to work today. But that was our Giro d'Italia Stage 7 recap and Stage 8 little quick preview brought to you by LaCole, partnered with us for this year's Giro d'Italia. We've got a big weekend ahead of us. I think, what do we got on store, Benji? Hand of Abel again. Is it a preview? Do we have a preview of it? You're the man that runs the agenda. Yes, we do have a preview on it planned. We got a small preview planned on Pai Tour as well, because why not? It's going to be a preview episode tomorrow as well, next to like having the Giro in it, because two races as well on Sunday at the same time so three races on sunday and we had some big news about that our super sunday that was supposed to happen browser bay is cancelled and that is unfortunately a big thing that has gone off the menu this season uh, the second cobble classic the second real one well the others are real ones as well but the second really big one and a monument which is always not fun i think it's the first time since world war ii that we've lost Another monument of Paris Bay not happening. And I think it's the seventh time in history. And all these six times before was during a world war. So quite a special occasion to have a monument being taken away. But yeah, I think we've got different opinions on this. I think I'm more of the general opinion, as in the general European opinion, I think, that everything is good as long as it keeps me safe. <laughs> But I think you're more of the opinion like, what is this one race going to do compared to the fact that people are still allowed with 20,000 people in a football stadium? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know what what's going on in Europe, like what the laws are between country to country. France has had its record cases yesterday, like 20,000 cases, way more than when the Tour de France was happening. Um, I don't know what other areas of life are shut down in France and whether having the one day race having the one day race cancelled is consistent with that if like bars and restaurants are open, etc. I definitely thought the Netherlands one was a little bit onerous, given that a lot of other facets of close contact seem to be going ahead. But then again, I'm in Australia, I'm not living with this COVID outbreak in Europe, which is much worse than in Australia. Um but yeah, um I'll keep my personal thoughts to myself, I think. But then again, 
there's a lot of other racing on. So we've got to be grateful, I guess. I'm trying to stay – well, I am staying positive. We've had more racing this year than I thought we would have. And given that numbers are so high, a lot of people criticizing cycling, any of these races being on right now, even the Giro and even the Tour de France when it did happen, when there were like 5,000 cases, 7,000 cases a day at the end of August – there were some questions about what people were writing articles, is this ethical, etc. And we still got the tour to happen. So I think we got to be grateful as cycling fans that they have happened. I've not seen any direct evidence that cycling races have caused more outbreaks, etc. Um, probably just, my, you know, I'm not sure anyone's really done that study or had time to. But so, yeah, I'm grateful they've happened. And it's a shame that Paris Bay is cancelled, but it seems like the local government knows best and their interests are in protecting their citizens, not Lantern Rouge watching Paris Bay go ahead. And while Van Aert was going to win it by attacking Van der Poel, who'd worked too much pulling for Wout Van Aert because he thought Wout Van Aert wasn't very good, and then Wout Van Aert would have put him in, in the bin. But we're not going to see that happen. Just imagine it in your minds. Shh. No tears, only dreams now.